Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. And uh, a lot going on. Um, I'm sure even if you're new to the Bible, you know that Jesus and the miraculous, they often go hand in hand. And this chapter is a, a story displaying that, that Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man, but as scripture accounts, Jesus did supernatural things. Things like multiplying a Lunchable to be able to feed close to 10,000 people, and things like barefoot water skiing without a boat, you know? He walks up next to the disciples, walking on the sea, defying even the laws of nature. Uh, The only person that could ever do this, if this were to have happened, is if this person were God. And that is the claim that Mark is is specifically trying to make. Um, Now, there's a greater, almost lesson and message that's being displayed even in this 30-verse account that we just read. Um, And it's it's kind of a practice that we've been employing each week. When we get to a new section, we're we're trying to look at what is the one specific thing that this passage teaches us about Jesus. What about the way of Jesus do we learn from this passage? And if you like to take notes, and even if you don't, I'd encourage you to write this down as the title of our study in this chapter today. Uh, In Mark chapter 6, what we see is the way that Jesus exceeded. The way that Jesus exceeded. Uh, This has kind of been a theme specifically for Jesus in this chapter, in chapter 6. Chapter 6 has been all about, listen closely, the various limits that people send to pla- tend rather to place upon Jesus. We saw it first last week with Herod and the crowds. You remember that? How they were all limiting Jesus to their own understanding of him and his ministry. This isn't something unique to the, tw- to the first century. This is common today. Today, people have all sorts of views of Jesus, of who he was, who he really was, and what really the explanation is for, you know, the, the revolution that hasn't stopped since his death and resurrection. Um, and still today, like back then, people limit Jesus. They limit him. They box him in to their own understanding, which usually happens when we take a part of Jesus and we make it the whole. We're like, well, I saw this of him. Because I know enough of this, I must know everything about him. And there's obviously a danger there. Now, we didn't just see it with the crowds and with even the political elite of the day. We also saw Jesus' own hometown family and neighbors limiting him. Do you guys remember that? Last week, Jesus, he brings the show to his hometown. And usually when the hometown hero comes home, everyone's like, yay, they're here, you know? And everyone shows up to the concert and they're there to just honor them, but not so with Jesus. Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth to bring his ministry there, but he's not received, right? He's not, he's actually, the Bible says, it says this, that he couldn't even do a work there. He couldn't. It wasn't that he didn't want to work in their lives, but he couldn't because they were unwilling to receive who he was. They were unwilling to honor him. Now, honor means to recognize, to place value upon something, necessary value. Like when you bring a, a gift card or a coupon to a store, hopefully they're going to honor it. They're going to say, yeah, this is, we'll recognize this. Well, they denied Jesus. And, and the way that they did what, that was they limited him. They said, you, you can't be the Messiah. Why? Because we've known you. I know, right? Like, you, you've grown up here. You're the carpenter. 
You're the son of Mary. You're the brother of these guys. And, and these are your sisters over here. You see, familiarity, it bred what? Contempt. Contempt. And that familiarity, it caused them to be, sadly, unable to receive what Jesus came to give them. You see, they're boxing Jesus in. And when we box Jesus in, we box Jesus out. And that's what's happening. This is the theme. People are limiting Jesus. And here in the passage we read, who do we find limiting Jesus? His own followers. Right? That, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Followers of Jesus tend to limit Jesus. Isn't that true? You ever limited Jesus in your own life? You ever created some kind of box that you actually didn't even know you had created? And then some page in the Bible... Or some work that God does, it, listen, exceeds whatever limits you had set. Now, that, that's what we mean here by saying Jesus exceeded. This is you know, the definition of exceed. What does it mean to exceed? To exceed is to go beyond a set limit. To go beyond a set limit. It's to go above and beyond any sort of bar that's been set of expectation. Now, this is what happens with the disciples. They have a limit that Jesus goes beyond here in a couple different ways. But what I want us to notice is this isn't always a bad thing. In fact, this is most of the time how Jesus grows and develops our faith. Have you noticed this? Where you, where you, you come to a place where you realize he's greater than whatever limit I set upon him. Whatever, like I used to think his love was this much, and now I've learned it's more than that. I used to think his power was this much, but now because of this experience, I see it's... It's higher. See, that, that's the, the positive opportunity we have when Jesus exceeds our expectations. There's, there's a negative, I guess, and a positive opportunity here. There's a negative light, certainly, that we see earlier in the chapter from those people we mentioned. And the negative, here, here's where, like, your limiting of Jesus is going to be very negative. If you're unwilling to break your box open. If you're unwilling to listen, let your faith rise to the level of his reality. If you're like, this is Jesus and this is all he is, then of course that's a negative opportunity. You're going to miss out on what he does. But if you acknowledge this, Jesus, I'm just going to lead with the fact that you're more than what I expect you to be. Like if you lead with that, whatever the situation is telling me about you, I'm going to lead with the fact that you're more than what I could ever expect. See, the, the, there's an opportunity for growth in that. That, that's really what discipleship is about. Our faith, wherever it might stop itself, discipleship is about our faith reaching the level of his reality from faith to faith. You might know this scripture that talks all about this. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do what? Exceedingly, exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, like this is what we're invited into as followers of Jesus. Isn't this awesome? You're not invited into a box where you know it all and now you're done. You're invited. This is what's great about following Jesus. You're invited into an opportunity to be surprised by Jesus each and every day. Has God ever surprised you? Like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that, Lord. I wasn't expecting that love and grace after I've come to you and repent over the same sin a thousand times. Lord, you, you surprised me again. I, Lord, I did not expect them to turn around. I didn't expect that situation to turn out the way that it did. See, this is what the Christian faith grants us, this opportunity to walk with Jesus and experience someone who's always going to surprise you if you let him. 
Uh, now, with the disciples here in Mark 6, that's what we see happening. We, we see Jesus exceeding their expectations, and they're developed in the process. And I think that these four, four ways that the disciples limited Jesus, I think they are applicable to us. As I look at each of these, I could honestly say these, these four things we, we want to look at are four things that I myself have certainly limited Jesus in in the past. And I want you to just take a moment here as we go back through this to be honest and just go, Jesus, am I limiting you here in any of these areas? And as you acknowledge that, there's a great opportunity to grow, right? To allow my faith to reach his reality. Now, here's the first thing we saw. Write this down. The first way that we saw the disciples limiting Jesus is we see them setting a limit first upon his plan. They limited his plan. All right? There was a plan that Jesus, this is what it's hardest, when Jesus is the one who makes the plan. It's like, it was your idea, okay? But Jesus makes a plan in Mark 6. What's the plan? Well, the disciples return from their mission trip, and they're debriefing with Jesus, telling him about all the different things that they did, all the different things that they said. Uh, really cool moment. And Jesus proposes a plan. Because here's the plan. Why don't we do a little... Travalgo vacation. Come aside by yourselves and let's go to a deserted place and let's rest a while. What an invite. Wouldn't you guys love for Jesus to like drop that in your DMs? You know what I'm saying? In your email inbox. Hey, it's Jesus. Just leave work, okay? And let's just get away for a while. You want to do that? It's like, yes, I'll follow you, Lord, okay? So this is what they get invited into. This is the plan. Here's what we're going to do. You guys are exhausted. So many people have been coming and going that you haven't, ha you haven't even had time to eat. So let's get away where into, I love this, a deserted place, a.k.a. where there are no people. Just be alone with me. We'll eat some good food. We'll take a, we'll take a rest together. What an incredible invite. I'm sure the disciples were excited about this. It's a great, by the way, reminder that every good work requires rest. You will limit the work you're doing for God if you're doing it in your own strength and you're not taking time to remind yourself that you're not him. And when you rest, you're displaying that. You're saying, you're at work even when I'm not. The, the fate of the world doesn't rest in my hands, so I can rest, listen, in yours. It's good to rest. It's good to pause. To get, like, when's the last time you just, you know, got away with Jesus? And just stop. Now, the disciples are so excited about this. They're also starving. I imagine them. Like 12 dudes, you know, in their 20s. These guys are hangry. You know what I'm saying? And you see it come out in the text. Like, get these boys a snicker, okay? They're hungry. I imagine when Jesus says, come, like if I was one of them, and Jesus said, come aside to yourselves to a deserted place, I'd be like, did you say dessert, Lord? I'm coming. Like a deserted place? I love deserted places, okay? That was a pun. Okay. We'll move on. Now, here's the plan. We're going to go and relax, and we're going to take a rest together. The scripture says, so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. What a peaceful boat ride. It, it's important to note there's no storm in the sea at this point. This is a great time to be in a boat with Jesus, okay? Every other time the disciples are in a boat, the winds are raging and the seas, you know, are rising. So things are going really well. And they, they find themselves in this deserted place, and I love that Mark emphasizes, by themselves, and then, you know, da-ding, 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 you know, the multitude shows up. 
The distraction, the noise, the interruption is there. The multitudes see them departing. And this is really interesting language here. Many knew him and they run there on foot from all the cities. No Uber back then. They're going on foot. They arrived before them and they came together to them. So, so talk about an interruption. Whatever the plan was, the whole plan has now been compromised because we have a whole crowd here. And I'm sure the disciples are expecting Jesus to say, no, 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 we have a plan. Multitudes, be gone. This is time with my boys, all right? Saturdays are for the boys, all right? And here I am with my disciples. The plan is we're going to get away and we're going to rest and you're messing it all up. It tells us that Jesus, he came out He saw the great multitude and says he's moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And Jesus begins to minister to them. He begins to teach them. Now, as the story goes on, what you sense in this account is that the disciples are pretty frustrated. They're frustrated because the plan that Jesus said is not being followed. Jesus is changing the plan. They're, in other words, limiting Jesus. You ever done this? You ever, you ever limited Jesus to the plan? And it's really easy to make the plan synonymous with his plan, especially if it's his idea. And that's a hard thing to figure out. Like, he told me to go this way. But what do you do when his path contradicts his plan? You ever been there? Lord, you said this, but this is what is. I remember you led me. I remember you said this to me. I remember you were the one that sent us in this direction. So what's going on? It can be difficult when Jesus' path conflicts with the plan. Now, I want to say this, a few key things about limiting Jesus with our plans. Um, First and foremost, the Bible doesn't speak negatively about planning in general. This is not a message that says, don't plan. If you want to be a good Christian, you know, that's like kind of the idea. It's like, just be led by the Spirit, you know? Like, don't have a plan, just kind of wherever the wind takes you. It's like, well, Scripture has a lot to say about that. I love uh, Proverbs 21.5 says that the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. You know, uh, what's the saying? Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. That's not in the Bible, but it's probably true, okay? I mean, according to Proverbs 21, that's, similar, that's a similar idea. Those of everyone who is hasty, a hasty person is someone who's always rushing because they didn't have a plan, so they're always reacting because they weren't proactive, right? And so this person's running around hastily, and they're led to a position of poverty. It's, it's a negative space versus a positive place. The plans of the diligent, though, the Bible speaks highly of plans. The Bible speaks, by the way, listen, most highly of godly plans. This is important too. Not just any plans. Don't just plan in general, but you got to plan the right way. you got to plan your life. you got to plan the year in a way that honors God. Now, here's what Proverbs 15 says. Without counsel, plans go awry. I love that word. I don't know why. It's annoying to say, but I kind of like it. Awry. It means they go amiss. They miss out. If you plan without godly counsel, if you are your own wise counselor, You're your own tribunal. It's like, who would you discuss this with? You're like, myself. And myself agreed it's the right idea. Okay, It's a dangerous place to be because the heart is deceitful. And you can plan according to your own desires if you're not submitted to godly counsel and community. But in the multitude of counselors, plans are established. There's another scripture that kind of talks about it in in the same breath. Proverbs 19, 20 and 22 says, listen to counsel. It's an encouragement. If 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 you have some big plans to make, listen to counsel. 
Who in your life can you trust is going to give you the counsel of God's word? That you may be wise in your latter days. I love that. In the future. Because how you plan now will lead to who you become in the future. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. That, that's such an interesting concept. There's, there's no shortage of plans in our heart. Like today, you've got your plans, don't you? What you're going to eat after you leave here today. What your week's supposed to look like. Every day we wake up, we've got plenty of plans. There's no shortage of plans in a man's heart. The question is, are your plans being guided according to godly counsel? And then the next step is, listen, are your plans submitted to God? Are they guided by godly counsel? Are they your plans or are they God's plans? And like the disciples, we look at this story, we ask ourselves the question, are my plans submitted to God? Listen, the danger isn't having a plan. That's not the danger to limiting Jesus. In fact, you, you can limit him by not having a plan. Does that make sense? The danger is not having a plan. Listen closely. The danger is trusting in your plan versus trusting your plan to the Lord. Trusting your plan to the Lord. Here's the way that James says it. James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Here's my plans. James says, you got plans? Come here, let's chat. All right, come here. Come now. All you people saying, I've got these plans? Come here, bring your plans. You got a plan, you're going to go to such and such a city. Florida's so expensive, I can't live here. Spend a year there. Buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. You see this? Now, the rebuke here is not in planning. You're like, oh man, I, Florida is expensive and I'm moving and I think I'm against the will of the Lord. No, that's not, that's not. The counsel here is not in having a plan, but it's, in, it, it's seeing your plan as sovereign rather than God. So, so the, the idea here is the heart posture that says, my plans are synonymous with the will of God, rather than saying, I love this posture, if the Lord wills. Isn't that a great, great a heart, heart posture to have? I made my plans, and now I'm saying, okay, God, whatever you will, here I am. I'm just surrendered and available to whatever your will is, even if it means that your will is that my plans change. That's hard, Right? That's hard when the Lord's like, hey, we're going to a deserted place. Psych! <laughs> Ministry time. I thought it was rest time. It will be. Now, the hardest thing about plans changing, well, it's, there's a lot of hard things about plans changing, especially when we make them and we think you know, and they're from God. I mean, first, like, it's just the cost of plans. You know what I mean? Like the cost of plans changing. Like when you had a plan to build a, a playhouse in your backyard for your kids and you build it and then uh, the city shows up at your door. It's really fine. <laughs> yes, Lord, here I am. Whatever your plan. Okay, we'll, we'll roll. I love this quote. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel said, blessed are the flexible for they shall bend and not be broken. That's a great, you know, little modern beatitude. Blessed are the flexible. Blessed are those who are so surrendered to God and his plans that, that when change happens, listen, their hope is not tied to their plans. Their hope is tied to the Lord and that their lives are in his hands. So no matter what happens, God, you can bend me every which way you want me to go. I'm not going to break because I'm trusting you because my life is not my own. My times are in your hands. Committing my plans to you, Lord. 
Now, this is hard, and maybe this is the, the most difficult thing about plants changing, is not just what it costs us in terms of resources and reputation, but he, ultimately, this kind of heart posture, planning the biblical way, it costs us one central thing that's the hardest thing to give up. And what is that? Control. <laughs> control, isn't it? Because well, you know what plants give me? They give me a false sense of control. God, I know what's going to happen. I know how things are going to go out. Here's the, here's the plan. And when things change, like this in the story of the disciples, here's what we're reminded. We're not as in control as we think we are. You see, we tend to be so tied to our plans because it gives us some semblance of control of our lives, which is what the human tendency is always after. And, and, and the way that it's often manifested is our obsessiveness to stick to the plan, but blessed are the flexible, for they shall bend and not be broken. Don't limit Jesus to your plan. And I say that to say this. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans the way, his way, but look at this, but the Lord directs his steps. You see the beauty in this? You see, what we're not saying is do something hard because life is about misery and suffering when you follow Jesus. What we're saying is, as hard as it may be to change, his ways and plans and direction is always better. It's always better, even if it's not what you thought was going to happen, even if it's not the direction you thought you were going to go. I know I'm speaking generally about plans, but I hope this is connecting and resonating with you in some way. Uh, I want to encourage you with this. Don't be tied to your plan. Be tethered to a person. Don't be tied to your plan. Be tethered to a person. Does that connect? All right, we'll move on. One person said, yeah, but that's okay. All right. The next thing that they were trying to limit Jesus with was not just his plan, but it was also his passion. They were putting his plan in a box. But then they see what was the root reason for why Jesus altered the plan. He altered the plan, which I, I want to point this out too. Jesus ends up with the disciples in a deserted place. That's what's interesting to see. It just wasn't also in their timing. That's another big part that we can box Jesus in, but I don't have time to get into that. Okay, his passion. This is the root reason why Jesus changed the timeline of plans. A crowd shows up, and as we saw it, and Jesus, the Bible says, sees the multitude, and even though they are at their desired destination, ready to have their retreat and opportunity to rest and connect with Jesus, Jesus sees this crowd, He's moved with compassion because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. And he begins to, like any good shepherd would, feed the sheep and teach them. And when the day was now far spent, the disciples, you just imagine the whole time they have their arms folded during the Bible study. You know what I mean? We were supposed to go whitewater rafting with Jesus, and these crowds are here, you know. I don't even know what that means. I don't think there's whitewater rafting in um, the, the desert. But, no, there's not. I know. Okay. The disciples go, I love this. They interrupt his Bible study. Hey, G G Jesus, great point. Amen, the kingdom of God. Listen, it's late, Lord. In fact, the exact time is 3 p.m. It's 3 p.m., Lord. It's my bedtime. You know, I don't know what they're saying. It's time to wrap it up, okay? The, it's a deserted place, Lord. Remember the deserted place? Remember our hangout, you know? Remember our vacation? And the, the hour's late, and so here's the response. To the crowd, ready? Send them away. Shoo. Send the people away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and by themselves, let them take care of themselves, Lord. For they have nothing to eat. Now the disciples, 
the reason why they're disciples is because they're learners. That's what we all are. Amen? We're not know-it-alls. We're learners. We're always learning and growing, especially in ministry. The disciples are learning ministry here. They just got back from doing ministry on a missions trip. I did ministry. They thought they, their understanding of ministry was like a thing you go do rather than who you are in relationship with every person you encounter. And, and what a con, isn't it a contrast between their posture towards the people and Jesus's? Their passion for people versus Jesus's? There's a contrast here. The disciples here, listen, they're moved by their priorities. They're willing to overlook a person and their need because of what they have to do and what their plan is and what their agenda is and what their priority is for the day. Jesus is moved by what? Compassion. He's moved by the need that he sees before him. The disciples want to send the crowds away. Jesus decides, notice this, to bring them close. I love that. What a display of the heart of Jesus. Um, I want to say that I'm sorry if a follower of Jesus has ever done this to you. I'm sorry if a follower of Jesus has ever sent you further away from Jesus because of whatever flawed idea they had of ministry. Can I just assure you, not from my testimony, but from the testimony of Mark, the heart of Jesus when you come to, when you come to him is this. He pushes out a chair and he says, sit down at my table. Come close. Come near. And I want you to see what motivated him. It tells us this, that Jesus saw the multitude as sheep not having a shepherd. This is huge. What motivated the heart and the arms of Jesus to welcome those that were coming to him was how he saw them. He didn't see them like the disciples saw them as an inconvenience. He saw them the way God saw them, which were, he says, like sheep, not having a shepherd. You see the picture there? You ever encountered someone like that and you failed to see it maybe in the moment? Can I tell you, you encounter people like this every single day. The question for us is, God, do I have eyes to see that the people around me, they're not an inconvenience. They're not an enemy even if they have a different political ideology than I do. How do you see people? Well, Jesus... Thank God that you see people the way that you saw me. Even when I was your enemy, you loved me. You cared for me. You saw me in my broken state. You had compassion on me. When you read Ephesians 2, you see the language of of our nature, of being dead in sin, of wanting nothing to do with God. Yet God, who was rich in mercy because of his great passion and love for us, even when we were still sinners, even when we were dead in our sins, Christ dies for us. He loves us. He he seeks us. Anybody ever felt this way? You ever felt like the one lost sheep? Who's not there, who's not where you should be? And the mindset is, is to think, well, there's the 99 righteous, and I'm over here, and one day maybe I can clean myself up and get into the club, right? But all along, Jesus isn't even there. You know where he is? He's with you. He's pursuing you. He's loving you. That's the heart of Jesus is to give us a seat at his table, to say, come, sit down. So so they limited his passion. They said, Jesus, you love this far. You love this much. You love until 3 p.m. That's what they said. (laughs) But Jesus exceeds that limit. And he he does that with us all the time. Have you ever done this? Have you ever said, Jesus, you you know, 
surely now you're done with me. You ever thought that? Just me? Lord, surely now you're done with me. Surely now I've crossed the line. Whatever limit I've set upon him. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says, man, that you and I would know the length, the height, the width, the depth of his love which has no marker that humans could put. In fact, here's what Paul says in Romans 5. Here's what happens. We're, the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So like whatever you thought that limit was, like if right now you have your own limit as to the love and grace of God putting up with your own mess, the mess that you and I are, and wherever you mark it, I just want you to know it's further than whatever your line is. Well, I, you know, I, but I, you know, I've come this far though, Lord. He's okay, I'm all the way over here. And then you go over here and he goes, no, I'm still that way. It's like the Lord's always further ahead in his love and grace than we can expect him to be. And so the disciples are going, Lord, send them away. And Jesus is going, no, bring them close. And I, I love what he says to the disciples. You feed them. I love that. He goes, you give them something to eat. Lord, let them go, you know, let, it's three o'clock, Lord. It's three o'clock. The game's going to be on, you know. Let them go. What game's on at three o'clock? I don't know. But let them go and get their own food, let them take care of their own needs. This is, my priorities matter most. And the good shepherd caring for the sheep, right? He'll even lay down his own life to save us from our sin. He tells the disciples, no, here's ministry. Ministry is being available to the spirit of God to meet the need that's before you. You give them something to eat. And this is the next way that they limit him. They limit his power, don't they? So they limit first his plan, then they limit his passion, and then we see them limiting his power because he turns to them and says, all right, guys, you're going to give them something to eat. Now, the, the, the Bible tells us that the disciples have been given the power of Jesus. It's early on. We talked about this borrowed power that he's downloaded to them to, uh, to serve him in the same authority that he has. And, and here they're coming to Jesus and they're limiting the power because of the limited situation. They're limiting God to the deficiency. Because there's limited resource... God must have limited power. That's what we tend to think. Uh, and, and what's brought to this situation, when Jesus says, you give them something to eat, what's brought to this command, we, we could say, is a mindset of, I wonder if you've ever thought this way, I have, it's a mindset of not enough. You ever felt that way? Not enough. Not enough to get there. Not enough in my marriage, not enough in my bank account, not enough in my spiritual gift tank, not enough wherever, fill in the blank. They had this not enough mindset, and they limited Jesus' power to their own supply. They said to him, Lord, I mean, what do you want us to do? There's, it's 5,000 people, not including women and children. We're, like, we're looking at like 10,000 people. That's a big crowd of people. Even a good catering service would fall short here. Like, what are we going to do? Like, I would do like a Golden Crowd buffet thing, but we don't have a buffet or food. Like, like Jesus, do you want us to go? Do you know how many people are here? Do you want us to spend eight months' salary? Basically, like, throw a wedding reception for all these people? What, what are we supposed to do? We don't have enough to do what you're calling us to do. You ever, you ever said that? God, I know you've called me to do it, but I don't have enough. And he said to them, I love this. This is usually, by the way, this is usually what Jesus responds to us with. When we say to him, I don't have enough to do what you've called me to do, he'll usually say, well, what do you have? What, no, 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 don't tell me about what you don't have. Take a look at what you do have. 
What do you have? And what are you doing with what you have? What do you have? How many loaves do you have? Go and see. Go investigate. Now, do, do we know where it comes from? A little boy. That's, where, that's what Matthew tells us. This is, by the way, the only miracle other than the resurrection that's documented in all four Gospels. It was that impactful in the life of the disciples? I, probably because of the message it's communicating about um, what happens when we give what we have to Jesus. They find out from this little boy, and it, it, this is usually what it takes, the childlike faith of a little boy. They're like, does anybody have anything to eat? And I'm sure people have like crackers in their pocket or something. They're like, nope. Yeah. Not enough to share with you, fool. You know, like. And a little boy goes, I have a Lunchable. You know, um, a little boy stands up and he goes, the faith of a child, right? Not bogged down by religion and, and usually the, the main thing, ooh, the main thing that causes us to limit God, what we've experienced. This kid hasn't experienced enough disappointment to doubt that Jesus can do the impossible. This is how we enter the kingdom of God, just like this. A child goes, well, here's what I, here's what I do have. I've, I've, got, I've got two sardines and five English muffins. That's what I got. I've got some bread and I've got some fish. And so, I love this, Jesus commands them, this is the real task, to make all 10,000 people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. So this is, the disciples are learning, uh, this is small group ministry, right? And they're learning it in the field right now. All right, we got to get the masses into groups. It's like the hardest thing to do as a church. Um, but don't you see the picture of the, of the shepherd? Jesus is dis displayed as a shepherd here, and he's leading, le leading them to lie down on green pastures. What a picture of the shepherd, huh? What a picture of what God calls us to do when we don't have enough. It says he had took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up to heaven, he blessed, and he broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set, sit before them. And the two fish he divided among all. What? He took five loaves and two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves. And then as he distributed it through his disciples, it was divided up among all. So, so that all ate and were filled. What a miracle. This is a miracle. And they took up, they even had all this, they had leftovers. We'll take out to-go bags. Thank you. We'll be back next week. They took up leftovers, 12 baskets full of fragments under the fish. And now those who had eaten the fish were about 5,000 men, 10,000 people. This is a miracle. The miracle of God producing what was needed was the result of the disciples surrendering what they had to Jesus and sitting down in rest and trust that he was going to do what he promises to do. This is true for all of our lives. God, I don't have enough. Well, just give it to me and then sit. And trust me and watch what I can do with your not enough. It's amazing. Listen, it's amazing when we commit what we have to Jesus, how fast what's not enough becomes more than enough. It becomes way more than enough. When we commit our lives to Jesus, you go, what little of my life do I have? It's more than enough in the hands of Jesus. Well, I just don't have enough in my marriage. Commit your marriage to Jesus and you'll see it's more than enough. All that he's looking for is surrender. The kind of faith that says, on my own it's not enough, but in your hands it's more than enough, Jesus. So I'm going to surrender to your power. Amen? All right, one last one. We'll close it out here. Last thing that they limited was his presence. 
We see his plan is limited, his passion is limited. We see his power is limited. Surely Jesus can't feed all these people. We don't have enough. And then Jesus sends the disciples' head in a boat straight, probably intentionally, into a windstorm. We already know he has power over the wind and waves, so you've got to think that he's like the operator of the wave pool. You know what I'm saying? It tells us, too, that he goes up on a mountain to pray. I wonder if that's what he's praying for. Lord, bring the waves. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But immediately, the point is here that he creates a divide between his physical presence and their physical presence. He has them get into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda. Rather, I said that twice uh, wrong, to Bethsaida. Well, and notice this. Eventually, he does send the multitude away once he was faithful to do what God called him to do. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. And as he's praying, the evening comes. The boat is in the middle of the sea. And Jesus was alone on land. So there's intentional language that Mark is using from Peter's account, who was there. To, to create uh, uh, um, this image of distance between Jesus and the disciples. His presence is here, their presence is here. And that's what they're feeling and thinking. Especially when they begin to strain at rowing because of how strong the wind is blowing. The wind is against them, so they're straining to row. There's no motor. They're just... Going away with elbow grease, straining. What a picture, the strain of life sometimes. And, and the mindset in this situation, like a lot of us can have, is Jesus was with me in the miracle, but where is he in the storm? He's over there. He was with me on land when things were smooth and rest was coming, but where is Jesus in the strain of life? You ever felt the strain of life enough to go, Lord, where are you? This is hard. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. The force, like, you know the verses that says, like, if God is for you, who could be against you? But you're like, this, this is against me. And this, it, like, I, there's no forward motion. I'm stuck. Whether, whether it's some, some situation I haven't been able to get over or some situation that I'm still in, there's this straining that can occur in our lives. And the question that we can often ask is, where is Jesus? And if we're honest, what we tend to do is we tend to limit him. In those moments, we're limiting his presence to the better times. But I want you to notice, this is so interesting. It tells us that Jesus, I, love, I don't know how this happened. I don't know if like he literally did or this is you know, the God-man pulling into his divinity here. But it says he saw them straining. Now, where is he? He's up on the mountain praying. So, so here, here's what's really beautiful about the presence of God. There's times like this where you can't see God. Like, like trying to see your hand in the pitch black dark. You're trying as hard as you can to see him, and there's no, there's no God in sight. But here's the security. He sees you. They can't see Jesus. They're straining. Where are you, Lord? The whole time he sees them. Like it reminds me of when we were like sleep training Judah. The other two, we didn't have to sleep train as much. Judah, Judah, had to struggle a little bit more to go to sleep. And one of the ways you sleep train them is like you have to let them put themselves to sleep. And the, and the hardest part is they don't like that. And like there's nothing more that you want as a parent than to go in when they're crying and screaming to coddle them and love them because, you know, you're kind of weak in your love sometimes. 
But the thing that makes it a little easier is the camera, right? That's like right over their crib. And so you can, you know, see them suffer. It's a lot easier that way. And you know, I'm going to, I'm going to harm Judah if I go in and take him out. Do you understand? He's growing, he's developing, he's learning. And, and, and listen, it's not that I've left him, it's just that he can't see me. And how much of this is life with God? Lord, what's the point of this wind that's against me? Listen, I know you can't see me, but I can see you. And I'm going to take what's working against you, and I'm going to use it to work something for you. If you trust, as hard as it is, that I can see you. Know this, that he sees you. Notice that you've never left his sight. Notice that as, far, as hard as he is to see, his eyes are on you. His eyes have been on you. You cannot go outside of his sight. I love this verse in Psalm 139. It tells us this in Psalm 139. Mike, can you throw that up? Psalm 139, 7. My guy. It says, where can I go from your spirit? David says this. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning... And if I even dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the disciples are probably quoting this in this moment, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So Jesus sees them straining at rowing. And I love that he shows up, of course, of course, he shows up walking on top of the sea as if it's dry, as if it's dry land. This beautiful picture that, listen, whatever storms are raging around you, you might not see Jesus, Know that he sees you, and by faith see that he is over the storm. He's walking on whatever you're walking through. He's walking on whatever you're walking through. He's sovereign over it. He is not straining in your storm. He's taking a, a long walk on the beach. You see the peace of Jesus? And doesn't that inform our peace in the storm? Because he's with me, and when he shows up, when I see him for who he is, everything changes. So question again this morning is, how have you limited Jesus? and Have you limited him in any of these ways? And, and what does it look like for you today to recommit to a posture that says, Jesus, I don't want to box you in. I want to be positioned in life to be surprised by you. So help me surrender my plans to you, right? Help me not limit you to the plan, even if it was your idea. Help me not limit your passion and your heart for people. Help me not limit your power by feeling like I don't have enough. Help me remember that it's more than enough when it's in your hands. And ultimately, help me trust that your presence is always around me, that even if I can't see you, you can see me. Amen.